Welcome to the History of Korea. I'm your host, Alan Lee. Today, we talk about the land and the origins of the Korean people. A quick note about the music you just heard. That's Luna Lee playing the Korean traditional instrument, the gaigam, playing an old song from the Goryeo area. No, I'm kidding. She's playing Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child, and I'll put a link to her YouTube on the website. If we want to understand the origins of Koreans, we need to start from the very beginning. We don't necessarily need to go back as far as the Big Bang, which was, by the way, 13.5 billion years ago, or the, the, the beginning of life, which was 3.8 billion years ago. But we, need, we do need to talk about, first of all, the land on which a Korea exists. And that's because nothing more determines a people than the physical environment in which they exist. And we then have to talk about kind of the origins of man, because there's still a lot of prevailing theories about what makes a Asian or a European or uh, by that by that measurement, what makes a Korean. So we are going to start very, very early, earlier than most history podcasts. And, you know, why not? We're trying to do things better here. So let's talk about the land. Korea is a peninsula that juts out from the southeast of China. Now, if you're an American like me, your sense of geography is pretty awful compared to the rest of the world. So bear with me as I put it in terms understandable to us isolated Americans. So think of the map of the U.S. Korea is very much like Florida. The continental U.S. is China and Canada is Russia. Now, directly to the west of Florida is the Gulf of Mexico. In our example, this is the Yellow Sea. Louisiana is what is now the Liaoning Peninsula, a very strategi strategically important peninsula in East China. And the Yucatan Peninsula is what we can call the Shandong Peninsula, where, where uh, Qingdao, the famous place where uh, the beer is made. And to the east of Florida, Florida is a string of islands called Cuba. In this, in this example, Japan is Cuba. Present-day North and South Korea are 46,540 square miles and 38,502 square miles, respectively. So North Korea is a bit uh, bigger than South Korea, although population-wise, uh, that's that's switched. South Korea has more, roughly you know, 50 million. Uh, North Korea has about 25 million. So together, they are about the size of Utah. To an American, that may seem small, but it's actually quite large because, believe it or not, Utah is about half the size of California. That's hard to picture because when you look at it on a map, when you look at those two states on a map, they're different shapes. The Korean Peninsula can also be compared to about the size of Great Britain, which itself is around 234,402 kilometers squared. And the, the combined Koreas are a little smaller than Italy. The two countries together would rank 48th out of 196 countries in terms of landmass. That's in the top 20%. It's basically bigger than Spain, Thailand, and Vietnam. Those are all really large countries, with actually, uh, the, the latter two having more population than the Koreas combined. So today's combined population of the two countries is around 75 million, which would rank it at around 20th out of 233 countries, or top 8.5%. So this is a pretty big country by any measurement. In any other region in the world, it might be a large power. And just to repeat, it's 48th or top 20% in landmass and top 8.5% in population. To drive that point even, even further home, 
the combined Korea would have roughly the population of Germany, and Germany being the dominant power in the EU now. If you look on the website at thehistoryofkorea.com, I've uploaded some pictures that show the Korean Peninsula superimposed on top of parts of other parts of the world. Uh, other parts of the world that I picked, which would resonate the strong, most strongly with my audience, which is basically the English-speaking world. So apologies to those who are not part of that world and listening in um, English as a second language. Uh, the first map that I show is like a, a super, uh, I superimposed the uh, Korean Peninsula on top of Great Britain. And actually, they're a pretty fair match. You can picture in your mind South Korea kind of matches up to uh, Southern Great Britain. Um, and then the North Korea kind of matches up with Scotland. But alas, Korea is in a neighborhood of giants. To the east is the largest and oldest surviving civilization in the world. Of course, we're talking about China. To the north is Russia, the largest country by area. And to the west is Japan, not a slouch either. Uh, it's the second largest economy in the world and the 11th most populous country in the world with 126 million people. Japan itself would actually far uh, outscale most of the most of uh, the countries in the European Union. If you were to impose superimpose the outline of the Japanese islands on top of Germ uh, on top of Europe, you'd actually be really surprised. Koreans like to say that they are the that they excuse me that they are a shrimp among whales, which is a self-deprecation that has served strategic purposes throughout history, and I think as far back as like Goryeo times. But really, it's not a shrimp. In terms of latitude, you may be aware of the infamous 38th parallel, which provides the demarcation between South and North Korea after the Korean War. But United Korea lies between the latitudes of 33 degrees north and 43 degrees north. If you superimpose Korea on a map of uh, California, Seoul, which is roughly the middle of the peninsula, would line up roughly with San Jose. So the whole of Korea would span from around Los Angeles northward beyond the border into Oregon. So as I said, it's not as small as you think it is. For you East Coasters, and again, I've I've provided these pictures on the website at thehistoryofkorea.com. If you lined up Korea along the same latitude on the East Coast, first you'd line up Seoul to around Virginia Beach, and the peninsula would then span roughly from around South Carolina all the way up to New York, New York City. So again, it's not a small country. For you Europeans, aside from superimposing it on top of uh, the UK, which is way farther north than the Korean, Korean Peninsula, if you were to match uh, the Korean Peninsula along the same latitude, it would essentially uh, it would be superimposed over southern Spain. Seoul would line up roughly with Sevilla in southern Spain, and then United Korea would span from the top of Morocco near Casablanca and reach almost to the northern uh, border of Spain. One thing you might realize just now, probably, from this exercise in matching latitude is how different the climate is between Seoul, southern Spain, and San Jose, California. The latter two are Mediterranean and might even be described as balmy for much of the year, whereas you would never really describe Seoul as balmy except during its summer where it's sweltering. But Seoul, even at the same approximate latitude, has four seasons and in particular is absolutely frigid during the winter. There are many reasons for this, I'm sure. I'm not a geologist 
or a weather person. But one of them has to be that Korea is attached to one of the coldest regions in the world, northeastern Eurasia, which includes such tropical balmy places such as Siberia, Yakush, the steppes of Mongolia, and northeast China. Uh, this is kind of an interesting analogy for history as well, because not only do bitter Arctic winds make their way south from the north of Asia, Eurasia, down to the Korean Peninsula, but so do the fierce people that live up there as well. And of course, we've found in many of the past episodes, these fierce people of the steppes have uh, influenced the peninsula probably as much as the weather. All these maps that I put up on the website are actually courtesy of a really cool website that I use a lot called thetruesize.com. I really encourage you to check that website out. It, it's free to use. It basically allows you to superimpose any political boundary, including countries, on top of other countries, just to kind of see how big they are in relation to other places on the globe. And our modern day map, as you probably know by now, is very, very um, misrepresented, misrepresentative of true sizes of countries in many cases. I'm going to end this talk about the land um, with a quote from one of our sources that I'm using for this episode from the 20th century. You'll probably realize from the language it's, it's fairly dated, but I, I thought it was a really good um, description of, of the land, which I don't see a lot in um, modern texts anymore. So, quote, no part of Korea is far from the seas. The seas, however, while filled with abundant fish and seafood, important components in the Korean diet, are not friendly to navigation. The east coast along the East Sea has few good harbors and is cut off from the major population centers by rugged mountains. Navigation on the western Yellow Sea coast is made difficult by shifting sandbars and some of the world's highest tides. Confined to a geographically well-defined peninsula with ample resources to support a fairly populous agricultural society, Korea developed its own distinctive society and identity while borrowing heavily from China, unquote. And just to add on to some of its talk about the coastline, nowadays, you're probably going to fly into Korea into either Incheon or, or Gimpo. And as you do, I, I encourage you to take a look out the window at the coastline. As this quote kind of mentioned, as you fly into the Incheon area, which is basically a string of islands, the 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 seas are you know, the seas separating those islands is extremely shallow. So if you fly in during low tide, you'll see really the kind of the low gradation of the shoreline, and you'll see lots of bigger boats that are basically kind of dry harbored on top of this water. So, and as we'll find out in Korean history. Um, it's the Koreans that have been able to really understand these waters and, you know, was very, was a big factor in someone like Admiral Yi, for example, um, out, out uh, navigating um, their enemies. So let's talk about the prehistoric land and how that affected the people that eventually came to live on, on it. I'll be drawing from both Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steels, published in 1997, and Sapiens, A Brief History of Mankind, written by Yuva Noah Harari in 2015. There were four glacial stages in China identified so far. The Poyang, which happened, at about, which happened about 800,000 years ago, the Taku, the Lushan, and the Tali. I haven't been able to find a lot of research on these stages in the English language, 
But suffice it to say that during the Ice Age, much of the water that separates eastern China, Korea, and Japan was gone. Or in other words, during the Pleistocene Ice Age, which lasted from around 1.8 million years to 11,700 years ago, uh, the oceans dipped by hundreds of feet from their current level, exposing the land beneath them. So continuing with our southeastern U.S. example, in which Florida is uh, Korea, Cuba is Japan, and Louisiana and uh, the Yucatan Peninsula are Laoning and Shandong Peninsulas, respectively, all of that would have been land. So prehistoric man had the ability to travel freely across these now political divisions. And I have a I have a map of uh, I have an approximate map of what that coastline might have looked uh, during the Ice Age. And so we finally come to talk about the people. As with anything, there are differing opinions of even prehistoric Korea. So just a this is going to be somewhat of a, a lengthy disclaimer before we get into the history of uh, before we start talking about prehistoric Korea. Um, and it's going to be longer than uh, than usual, but it, but it has to be said. So I'll kind of tell you about the controversy surrounding um, the study of prehistoric Korea, a brief timeline. So in ancient times, of course, it was the Koreans and Chinese that debated the origins of Korea. And this had, you know, far ranging ramifications on political borders and who, you know, who controlled what land, etc. That probably started really as long as the history between Koreans and Chinese, like pre pre uh, before the Common Era. Later, it was the Mongolians in the 13th century that debated the origins of the Korean people. And starting in the 16th century, when Japan entered the picture, it became a topic of debate and instrument of politics for both the Japanese and the Koreans. This continued into the 19th century when Japan, um, at least unofficially, first um, introduced uh, Korea to industrialization and undertook its own historical survey of Korea, then in the 20th century, it was the Americans who undertook this analysis. And a lot of that analysis was, uh, some of that was based on what the Japanese did, which makes this disclaimer all that more important. So I want to tell you about the sensitivity when it comes to prehistoric Korea with respect to Koreans. So Koreans are extra sensitive to these issues, and I'll tell you why. During the Japanese occupation, Again, you know, officially it was, I guess, 1910, but, you know, this this started to happen, you know, prior to the 20th century, um, late turn of the century. Japan started sending scientists, including archaeologists, archaeologists and historians, etc., to Korea. Part of their mission, I mean, this was part of their kind of broader mission to modernize Korea, but the other was to, unfortunately, craft a historical narrative of the Japanese and Korean people that would accomplish political and military goals. As you may know, uh, during that time, uh, Japan essentially was trying to establish itself as the hegemon in Asia. And that kind of grip on um, that position was, was not a strong one. They were facing, obviously, tons of resistance from the locals, but they were also finding a lot of resistance from the Western powers who were all trying to get a piece of Asia at the time. So uh, there were overt shades of racism. There, there was kind of this idea that Japan, the Japanese had uh, a race-based manifest destiny when it came to conquering Korea and China and the rest of Asia. And so they essentially went into Korea um, uh, with some of them came into Korea with, with this goal in mind. And they essentially went into archaeological sites 
They closed it off from basically the rest of the world, of course, including the Koreans. And they started to dig and they started to, you know, pull up all these fossils and and remnants and and evidence from Korea's past. And um, there's a lot of accusations from the Korean side about how accurate that research was, because there was a lot of, um, in particular, there were some accusations about them about the Japanese misplacing evidence and in some cases even destroying it. And, you know, that's something that's ongoing and it's it's going to be really hard to ever resolve that because of of the nature in which they did it. In other words, they it was not a transparent process. It was very opaque and they never, they never allowed any oversight into their uh, research. At least in some cases, they didn't allow any oversight from third parties, including the U.S. and of course, they, they hid it from the Koreans as well. So when it comes to talking about prehistory and and what evidence remains of that kind of stuff, it's pretty sensitive. And um, so, and it's not to say that this is, you know, water under the bridge, because this was really just two generations ago. Um, and not to get into who's right or not, but there are some of the people that went through this experience still live today. And um, so it's a very, still a very raw uh, event in the minds of many people involved. So just be forewarned when we talk about these events with Koreans, especially with respect to like the quote unquote origins, origins of the people, that uh, there is a lot of um, sensitivity there. Okay, so disclaimer over, let's talk about uh, hominids. And before we get into this, I'll give a very brief summary of the current prevailing theories of the evolution of man. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, I, I told you, hey, we're going to go as far back as we can, because there's actually some theories talking about uh, what what differentiates Asian people and presumably Koreans from the rest of the world uh, began in as early as uh, the kind of precursor to homo sapiens. And this stuff is changing really by the day. I mean, every day there's new archaeological evidence, there's DNA sequencing that's going on. I think uh, we started to, we mapped the human genome, I think it was 2004. So this stuff is really new. Um, in, in particular, we didn't know about this early precursor to man called the Denisovan, which was a contemporary of the Neanderthal. Um, we found evidence of this person in 2010, which is barely nine years ago. So with apologies to evolutionists out there, here's a very, very brief summary of the history of man, which I will be referring back to uh, later in this episode. So 1.8 million years ago, Homo erectus uh, show, turns up in Eurasia. A million years ago, the Denisovan evolves from a common ancestor. 800,000 years ago, humans first used fire. Neanderthals uh, diverged from a common ancestor. This is also the time that we think Peking man lived. 300,000 years ago, Homo sapiens is uh, basically evolves. By this time, humans are using fire regularly. 160,000 years ago, we found evidence that Denisovans were living in the uh, Tibetan plateau. We also think around a million humans were living in Eurasia at that time. 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens forms what we think is culture. Homo sapiens goes to Arabia from Africa. 50,000 year, 50, years ago is what uh, Diamond calls the Great Leap Forward, or, the, or when we think you know, humans gained intellectual capacity. 30,000 years ago is what 
Harari calls the cognitive revolution, which I think is kind of the same as what Diamond is saying regarding the Great Leap Forward. 15,000 years ago, we have evidence that the Denisovans actually bred with Homo sapiens in Indonesia. And 12,000 years ago, the agricultural revolution and the end of the last ice age, as we had mentioned at the top of the episode. And essentially, we will probably end this episode at around 12,000 uh, BC um, at the agricultural revolution. So we are uh, really changing our understanding of the evolution in Eurasia as Asia finally catches up to the Western world in terms of archaeology and other research. The term Eurocentric is a very politically charged word, I know, but in this case, it is pretty fitting. All our understanding about human evolution is very Eurocentric right now. And that's not necessarily on purpose. It's just the natural result when most researchers up until this point were conducted by Westerners. So whether you're American or you're European, your ancestors most likely came from Europe. And so you're going to be, that's where you're going to look first. So if you have more people digging up human remains in Europe, then you're going to get a very complete picture of that part of the world, but not so much the rest of the world. But thankfully that's changing. And it's China, of course, that is leading the way. There's now tons of research being conducted in the far corners of China that are, in some cases, challenging a lot of the prevailing theory first formed in Europe and America. And this is a very extreme edge case, but there is a case of a set of fossils called the Dolly Man, the Dolly Man which um, has become highly politicized. Uh, it's basically a couple of, a few Chinese scientists that have found what, think, what they think are kind of the missing link in our evolutionary chain in a place in China, um, and are then using it to propose a competing uh, theory for the evolution of man, one challenging kind of the generally accepted one, which is that Homo sapiens developed first in Africa and then spread to the rest of the world from there. I don't know exactly what their theory says, but just to let you know, that kind of stuff is happening across China. And whether they're correct or not, and whether they are allowing the rest of the scientific community to evaluate or not, this is just to say that there's more research going on. Uh, that is, there's an active uh, there's active research going on in Asia that is not no longer um, directed by the kind of establishment based in America and Europe. So here's what I can tell is the most accepted theory so far, starting from as far back as the first members of the Homo genus. So genus is right above species in the taxonomy. And just to let you know how all this uh, data, how new this data is, when you look up the genus Homo in Wikipedia, the table shows all the usual suspects, including Homo sapiens, Neanderthals, and Erectus. But the Denisovan, which we'll be talking about very soon, is not in the Wikipedia entry for the genus Homo, at least the, the last time I checked. And it's because I there's probably some debate going on whether to categorize the Denisovan as either a species or a subspecies. So it's still ongoing, and uh, I'll probably have to update this podcast, you know, a year from now based on all the scientific evidence that's going on. But it's very, very exciting. So here's my take on evolution as it relates to Koreans. In a nutshell, um, with apologies to the real biologists out there. So just to repeat a little bit, two million years ago, Homo erectus appears in East Africa, migrates into Eurasia by 1.8 million years ago. 
It's probably the first hominin to live in a hunter-gatherer society and to control fire. So they spread out across Asia. Around a million years later, two subspecies evolved from Erectus, either directly or we may find another missing link in the future. The first species is very well documented, the Neanderthal. That species was discovered in the 19th century by a Belgian scientist and has since entered the popular lexicon as a synonym for quote-unquote caveman. I believe Neanderthal first appeared in Africa and then migrated to Europe and then on to Central Asia and then all across Asia. The second subspecies is the Denisovan, which I mentioned, which has a lot of relevance for Asian people and presumably Korean people. I don't know where the Denisovan first appeared. haven't found that uh, on Google yet. But scientists say they evolved maybe 200,000 years after the Neanderthals did from Erectus. Denisovan fossils have been found all across Asia. Both the Denisovan and the Neanderthal are extinct, but before they died out, they both interbred with Homo sapiens. And this is where things get really interesting. Europeans and Asians have anywhere from 1% to 4% of their genome from Neanderthals. But in addition, East Asians, including presumably Koreans, have around 0.2% of their genome from Denisovans. Melanesians, on the other hand, these are the indigenous people that inhabit Southeast Asia, including Papua New Guinea and um, Aborigines in Australia, have up to 5% of their DNA from Denisovans or Denisovans. I don't even know how to pronounce it. It's so new. Uh, it's, it's actually um, named after a Russian uh, person that actually lived in the area in which the first fossils were found. Scientists say Denisovans might have been interbreeding with Melanesians as recently as 15,000 years ago, which is really remarkable because the kind of timeline we're dealing with now in terms of prehistory, we were measuring in the hundreds of thousands of years. 1.8 million years ago, Homo erectus, 800,000 years ago, etc. But 15,000 years ago is really just a, a tick on the, on the clock in terms of that. Latest research from this year, actually last year, 2018, suggests that Denisovans that passed on their DNA to East Asians are a different group than the ones that passed on their DNA to Melanesians. So basically, Denisovans originated from Africa, but there were two waves that were very, um, that were spaced apart. One wave uh, went past through Asia before going to the Indonesian islands like Papua New Guinea. Um, presumably it was easier to cross during the Ice Age. And then the second group of Denisovans passed through Asia but did not end up in Papua New Guinea. And now through DNA analysis, we're finding that the Denisovans of Asia were not part of the earlier... Mig so basically I'm saying, um, you know, the Denisovans of Asia were not part of the earlier migration of Erectus out of Africa um, that turned into Neanderthals. In fact, there might have been another migration out of Africa by Erectus that turned into Denisovans. So we have a very limited, dare I say, Eurocentric view of history. And thank God there's more research being done now on stuff like the Denisovans from the, uh, the Asian community. Scientists have also discovered traces of other prehistoric species in our DNA. So we're still finding more and more about ancient man, especially Asian people, which of course includes Korean people. So the question is, is there Denisovan blood in modern-day Koreans? The answer is, it appears so. I found a peer-reviewed study by the Department of Evolutionary Genetics at Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, that's a mouthful, in Leipzig, Germany, 
which is kind of the gold standard for this kind of work, it did not find evidence of Denisovans in the sample of Koreans they took. But they didn't find it in Japanese either. But there was another study that I saw in which Denisovan blood had been found in Japanese and Han Chinese. So when the dust kind of clears, settles, I would guess that yes, we will eventually find Denisovan heritage in Koreans. So back to our story. Erectus leaves Africa, evolves into Neanderthal, uh, evolves into Denisovan, and both interbreed with our precursors, the Homo, uh, with our precursors, the Homo sapiens, who definitely evolved while in Africa. And they both leave traces of their DNA to this day, which affect us. This is not just a, uh, a neat, interesting scientific fact. Um, some scientists believe that the Tibetans' ability to acclimate so well to high altitude is attributable to their Denisovan DNA. And uh, just to go back to Homo erectus, so to be clear, erectus did not die out until much later. In other words, for tens of thousands of years, it coexisted alongside Denisovans and Neanderthals, which evolved from erectus in Eurasia and in some cases interbred. We found evidence of Homo erectus in Asia. One of them, or the first case, is actually called uh, the Peking Man. We think he lived around 780,000 years ago, and his remains were found near Beijing in 1923. He was definitely not a Denisovan because uh, he was too, he was dated to be too early for that. So let's jump ahead to 300,000 years ago, when Homo sapiens evolves in Africa, emerges out of Africa, goes first to the Middle East, where it splits into two. One group goes to Europe, the other goes to Asia. And this also is kind of uh, under debate, but that's kind of the prevailing theory. Once in Asia, and who knows how it happened, they start mating with Neanderthals and Denisovans already there, and Erectus there as well. For example, in 2015, scientists in Daoshan, China, found human teeth that places sapiens in China as far back as 120,000 years ago. This is in contrast to the first uncontested remains of sapiens in America, which is 12,000 BCE in Alaska. As for Korea, the first remains of hominids on the peninsula date back to 400,000 years ago. I don't know what species this was, but it was probably erectus based on the timeline. North Koreans state they have found remains 600,000 years old, but I don't think that evidence has been evaluated. Remains of Paleolithic hominids have been found at, and I'll give you, so that you can Google it, I'll give you the Korean uh, Korean uh, pronunciation, or I'll try anyways. Apologies for the pronunciation. Ungigun Gulpori, in the extreme northeast of Korea. These remains have been tentatively dated back 400,000 years ago. Another name for the fossil site, and I think it's pretty famous, is Jeonggongri. Jeonggongri. But what happened in Asia more recently, like 40,000 years ago, concurrent with the Denisovan living in Siberia? Probably we're still figuring that out. Further research in Denisovans is occurring as we speak. And as I mentioned before, there is evidence that Han Chinese and Japanese can trace some of their lineage to them. So I'm pretty sure Koreans can as well. So let's jump ahead again, this time to around 10,000 years ago, when the first evidence of human civilization is found on the Korean peninsula. 
from here until recorded history, which is around 2000 BCE, we have three ways of piecing together what happened. The first two are time-worn traditions. The other is new. The first two are archaeology and language. The other is DNA. So let's first discuss DNA. We didn't really start to study DNA until pretty recently. Uh, we fully mapped the genome, I think it was 2004. So, you know, much of the text that I've read from the 20th century emphasizes that the Koreans must have come from Northeast Asia based on our language and archaeology. But recent DNA evidence adds a new level of complexity to the story of prehistoric Koreans descending from Northeast Asia. Based on our DNA, it seems we have just as much lineage from th southern China. Whether this DNA predates that of our Northeast DNA is unclear. We will definitely more know more in the future. Is this important? Yeah, I think so, because, for example, the research that Tibetans are able to breathe more easily in high altitudes coming from Denisovan genes is, is quite a statement to make. So, yeah, it's very exciting stuff. Let's talk about the second way. Uh, the second way to put together pre or piece together prehistory is to study language. Before the advent of DNA sequencing, language was a really important tool for studying prehistory. One important reason is that language predates writing. Even though these ancient people probably didn't have a written language, they surely had a verbal one, as scientists surmise that prehistoric humans had language as early as 70,000 years ago. This is Some of this is based on biological evidence of the uh, maturation and development of vocal cords, for example, vocal boxes. These verbal languages could be found in writings after the fact and even in the modern-day languages of the people. So it's kind of the same theory in that you can have... So Korean people have a language that is very distinct from Chinese, Chinese writing, but uh, back in the day, they basically used Chinese script to represent their vocal language. So we know that vocal language most likely predated them learning their script. In the 20th century, researchers uh, believed the following, and I quote from Soen's History of Korea, which is which was written in the mid-century, mid-20th century. Quote, Linguistically, Korean is an agglutinative, polysyllabic language of complete and symmetrical development. It is attributed to the Altaic language family, unquote. So, um, recently, the Altaic umbrella has been discredited, at least from what I've read. This was apparently a thesis to unite Tungusic, which is basically Siberian and Manchurian, with Japanese, Korean, Mongolian, and the Turkic languages. If you read enough historic texts from this region, you'll see that word a lot, uh, Altaic, which refers to the Altai mountain range, which is dead center of Asia, spanning Xinjiang, China, Mongolia, and Kazakhstan. There's a general consensus now that Japanese and Korean should not be included in this language group. And furthermore, there's research that the other languages in this group don't really belong with each other either. So I'll give you another quote, this from 1992 from a linguist. Quote, when cognates proved not to be valid, Altaic was abandoned, and the received view now is that Turkic, Mongolian, and Tungusic are unrelated, unquote. That's from Joanna Nichols, Linguist, uh, Linguistic Diversity in Space and Time, 1992. So I know we're throwing out a lot of technical linguistic terms here. I'm not a linguist, obviously, and uh, I, I can't do that field of research any justice. 
And it's kind of out of the scope of this podcast, even though it's actually really fascinating. But let's try to unpack some of that terminology. So quote unquote cognates are words that share a common etymology and may span languages. Uh, and we'll kind of discuss the other uh, the other technical linguistic terms uh, in a minute. There's another term that you see a lot, which I referenced a little bit, quote unquote Tungusic. And here's a Wikipedia entry on it. Quote, and and remember that term is still being used, um, you know, as of today. Quote, the term Tungusic is from an exonym for the Evenk people used by the Yakuts and the Siberian Tatars in the 17th century, meaning, quote-unquote, pig. It was borrowed into Russian as something, I can't read Cyrillic, and ultimately into English as Tungus. It became a broad term for speakers of the whole family, quote-unquote, Tungusic. Use of Tungus is now discouraged. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The Russian government now uses the endonym quote-unquote, event officially, unquote. Uh, so yikes. Um, Tungus actually comes from the word pig, which is apparently how some people in Russia refer to the event people. So yeah, let's, you know, we're learning things, <laughs> we're learning new things every day here, and we got to correct these things. Um, let me just uh, give you another quote about language. This is from uh, Seth, uh, History of Korea, which was written, uh, I think, uh, well, early 21st century. Quote, Koreans share a grammatical structure with Japanese and the Altaic languages. All are agglutinative, that is, one adds components to a root to form words that are often long. This linguistic relationship, if accurate, is often interpreted as meaning that the ancient ancestors of modern Koreans came from Central Asia and entered the peninsula through Manchuria, with, th with some of them going on to occupy the Japanese archipelago. According to one current theory, the ancestral uh, Koreans spoke Proto-Altaic, one branch of which involves into the Tungusic language, there's that word again, and another into Proto-Korean Japanese, which eventually became the modern Korean and Japanese languages. So let's unpack that for a bit. We've already talked about Altaic and Tungusic. I don't know if Tungusic is appropriate to use in terms of language, if it's, I don't know, um, but just be aware of that. But let's talk about the term, quote-unquote, agglutinative. Basically, that means a language that takes a root form and adds a bunch of prefixes and suffixes in order to convey all types of different meanings. And here's an easy example. So in Korean, if you, if you say you speak English well, you say, and again, apologize for my accent, which I think is uh, probably American, uh, the root word here is hada, or to do. If I say, the neyo is an agglutination in which I've added the suffix to the verb hada to have a new to have a whole new connotation. And in this case, you're relating in an intimate way that you are surprised that they speak well, that you are not expecting them to speak well. In English, we don't use agglutination. We convey this by adding an adjective or adverb, as in, quote, you speak English surprisingly well, unquote. Because these kinds of language characteristics are shared with languages from Siberia, Manchuria, and Northeast China, uh, uh, supposedly, or apparently, we surmise that these early pottery makers, which we'll be talking about in a second, um, came from, that from the same region as well. So that brings us to uh, the third way that we can determine uh, prehistory. And that is basically pottery. So we talked about DNA and language as a way of piecing together prehistory. 
We talked about how DNA is actually starting to challenge some of our assumptions based on language. The third way is archaeology, and in the case of Korea, it relates very strongly to pottery. So, not to give you too much of a tease, let's end there. Because when we start to talk about pottery, we actually start to get a really good picture of the actual people, humans, or homo sapiens, should I say, modern day humans, let's put it that way, that lived on the peninsula back, uh, you know, in prehistory, like 11,000 years ago. Um, and we'll get to that in our next episode. Until then, I'll play you the rest of Luna Lee's incredible rendition of Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child on the Gaia Gum. Here's your warning that it gets really loud with a lot of distortion. Thank you.